Um, So we're going to be reading Leviticus today, starting at Leviticus chapter 1 and reading 1 to 17, which is the whole chapter. Uh, And so you can follow along um, on the screen or if you've got a Bible, open it up. Leviticus chapter 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons, the priests, will bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priests, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering is a burnt offering from the flock, from either the sheep or the goats, you are to offer a male without defect. You are to slaughter it at the north side of the altar before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall splash its blood against the sides of the altar. You are to cut it into pieces, and the priests shall arrange them, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to bring all of them and burn them on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, you are to offer a dove or a young pigeon. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off the head, and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He is to remove the crops and the feathers and throw them down east of the altar where the ashes are. He shall tear it open by the wings, not dividing it completely, and then the priest shall burn it on the wood that is burning on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. I'm sure that many of you have not heard Leviticus 1 read out in church before. You're going to hear lots of verses you've probably not heard read out in in church before over the next five weeks. And it's good reason. We're going to look at Leviticus. As we begin in chapter 1 today, um, I want to get us thinking about the purpose of the book and why it matters. And as we begin, maybe you have seen on YouTube or Instagram Reels, if you're that way inclined, um, how different people from other countries find Australia and they're kind of shocked at our culture. And they post a video saying, I can't believe in Australia they do this or have that or act this way. Uh, and it's very strange to them. And then we laugh at it because we think, yes, it's so very much like us. Well, I thought if I was to do one about Australia, write a book even on the culture of Australia, here's what I put in it. See if you'd agree with me and if I'm missing anything, then do... You, Tell me just in a moment. But I would say we're sport-obsessed. And poor Adelaide just won yesterday, didn't they? I'd say long weekends are sacred. I'd say it's not a birthday party without cake and fairy bread. I'd say time off at Christmas is essential. 
I'd say year 12 formals and uni graduations are a rite of passage. I'd say your driver's license equals freedom. I'd say we're a laid-back country, but we love concrete rules and clarity around those concrete rules. What would you add to that list? Did I miss anything? If I was to go back to Moses, not Moses kid in here, but Moses who wrote the book of Leviticus, just after the exodus from Egypt, and I said, Moses, um, can you write a book that defines the people of God for me? Tell me all about their culture as those who have been saved by God's grace and kindness. He would hand me a copy of Leviticus. Yes, Leviticus. It is a little weird, and it does continue today to claim the life of many Bible reading plans every single year, But if I was to summarize this book, and this is what I hope you'll see with me over the coming weeks, Leviticus is all about hope. Leviticus is all about hope. 27 magnificent chapters about coming face to face with a holy God, with his grace and his mercy to us as sinful people. Leviticus is all about hope. And today in chapter 1, we will see the first part of this, and it's the called, I've called it the cost of our sin. Because it's the hope that we can be forgiven before a holy God through a ransom. That's the big idea. Only through a ransom can our debt to God be paid. And that may sound strange to you. You might be thinking here, I don't owe God anything Actually, God owes me after the life I've had. Or maybe you've forgotten that this is actually how God works. That even now, as a Christian, you relate to God through a mediator with a ransom to cover and keep covering your sin. So no matter how you came here today, join me for the next 22 minutes or so to see why it's good news that God offers a way for our sin debt to be paid to him by the ransom of another. And if by faith you grab hold of this truth, it will totally change your life. As we go through Leviticus in the next five weeks, I'm going to use the same outline every week, but change it slightly, obviously, because we're in a different part of the book. Uh, We're going to look at four parts, and I'll fill in new details every week. The first is, so if you've got the outline on the hub, really helpful to follow along, but the first thing we're going to look at each week is the story so far, to help us understand the significance of the book for the people back then, where it fits in God's big picture. Then we'll zoom in on the chapter details, what does this chapter contribute to God's unfolding revelation of scripture, and then we'll see the heart of God, because Leviticus, yes, it is law, But remember, it's showing us the heart of the lawgiver. So what's the timeless truth about God's character that we want to see? And then we'll finish with the how much more of Jesus. Because we're Christians under a new covenant with God through Jesus. The one that Leviticus ultimately points us to. And so we'll end each week by seeing how much more Jesus has to say about this. And that comes from Hebrews 9.14, which says, How much more will Jesus... His blood, who offered himself unblemished to God, clear our conscience from acts that leads to death. So that's the four parts we'll go through. So let's start today with the first one, the story so far. Leviticus 1.1. 1, 1. 
And the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. You can't really see the word and in your English Bible, but Leviticus actually begins with a conjunction. And English teachers, I heard you groan as I said that because a sentence or a book beginning with the word and is not what you do. But there's good reason why. Leviticus is the second book in our Bible. It's part of the first five books, which are specifically called the Torah, beginning with Genesis, ending in Deuteronomy. Those middle three books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all begin with a conjunction, all showing that they're telling one united story that we're meant to read together. Genesis to Deuteronomy, it's one go. We've broken it up, which is fine. But in the Hebrew, you see that it's actually showing it should be joined together. And that's good. Here's why that matters. Because in Genesis, we learn about God's promise to Abraham, land, offspring, blessing. Part of that blessing is being in a relationship with God. In the second book, Exodus, we learn that the relationship is established after they were saved from Egypt in Exodus 19. They were saved by God's grace. Which means Leviticus and all the laws show how to maintain the relationship that already exists with God. God's people are saved before they got the law. And that's why when you read the Psalms, you hear David often say, the law of God is a delight. It's sweeter than honey. It's something you love. It's more precious than gold. It's describing the joy of knowing and living with God. I dare say... No one says that about council bylaws. No one says that about constitutional law of Australia. It's my delight. Maybe one person does. Then at Exodus 35 and 40, God's people build this big tent so God could live among them called a tent of meeting. But at the end of Exodus, we have a problem. Moses can't go into that tent. He goes to walk up to it. God's glory overshadows it and he has to stand still and stop. He can't enter. The people are left outside. Why? They're not holy like God. If you remember the story of Exodus, we've learned that they're evil, wicked, rebellious, sinful. (laughs) And that needs to change. And Leviticus begins right at this moment after God's glory comes on the tent, Moses standing out the front, and God speaks to him and says, these instructions give to the people of how you can live with me, a holy God. Which means... Everything that comes now is actually a gracious gift from a good God so his people can live with him. That's why Leviticus is full of hope. And that's very different from the culture of Moses' day or even today because when you read the sacrifices, they're not done to manipulate or please a God. That's not how the biblical God works. You don't manipulate God through a sacrifice. You're not, appeasing, sorry, you're not appeasing him. You do please him, but you're not appeasing him. They're his gracious gift to make people holy like him so God can live with us. Which means, the story so far is that Leviticus is relational. Because God's relational. And it continues this relationship he's made with his people. So as we get to chapter 1, let's look at that now. And you need to know that when my kids were born... I had to wear scrubs for all three of them. I got taken to a small room and I had to put on blue clothes. I had to go into the operating room and, and had to wear them. Um, the first time, I didn't know how to wear them and, I, and, and it, was, it was very awkward and uncomfortable and a bit weird. Second time and third time, I got used to it. But before anything else, before I could go in that room for the operation to be part of it, I had to change. I couldn't walk in as I was. 
I had to change my clothes for something fitting for that hospital theatre room. And just like a change of clothes was needed for me, so God now needs his people to learn how to approach him. Because the first thing they need to learn is that their sin is great, God is greater, and the life of another will erase their debt to God. And chapter 1 begins by telling them how it's going to take place. It says offerings will maintain this relationship. Actually, chapters 1 to 7 tell us this. There's five offerings in these chapters. Three of them are sorry God offerings. They're the burnt, sin, and guilt ones. You say, I'm sorry God with those offerings. Two of them are thank you God offerings. You say thank you to God through the peace and the grain offering. So thank you and sorry are made with offerings. You repair and rejoice in the relationship with an offering. And here's how it works. Verse 2, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either herd or flock, If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so it will be acceptable to the Lord. So, a cow, or as a chapter goes on to talk about, you can use sheep and birds as well. It begins with those that have the most economic value, a cow, to the least, some birds and doves. They all do the same thing. The point is that God doesn't want anyone to not be able to relate to him through an offering for their sin, you see. Can't afford a cow? Use a sheep. Can't afford a sheep? You can't afford a bird? Use that. But you don't just grab any cow. God has to like this cow. Because the offering we read in verse 3 and 10 is it must be perfect, no defect, no flaws. And Woolworths get this. They have the odd bunch. Slightly bruised, ugly fruit and vegetables that are going out cheaper, out the back, not on the front, because the nice, perfect ones are where the money's going to be made. The odd ones, the blemished ones, are less valuable, but they're still edible. They're still okay, so you can buy them cheap. Do you know the sheep up there is called Double Diamond? Does anyone know why Double Diamond is so, so important? Well, Double Diamond sold for $660,000 last year as a stud sheep the most expensive sheep ever sold and bought as a stud. Because Woolworths and whoever bought this sheep know the value of nice, perfect things. From food to sheep to cars to first edition books or a new phone or a clean house, we know the value of nice things. And in Leviticus, that matters because of who we're giving our offering to. The value shows the heart of the lawgiver, God wants the best, and it shows the heart of the one offering it, gratefulness. Years later in Malachi, chapter 1, verse 8, God condemns his people because they're giving him the odd bunch. He says, guys, you wouldn't serve that for an earthly king. What on earth makes you think you would give that to a heavenly one? Because the value of the thing shows the worth of the one we're giving it to. But it's more than that. Because you don't just, you don't just give God the offering. The offering becomes you. Look at the next verse. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You put your hand on its head, showing a relationship between you and this animal. It's a way of saying the animal represents me. The animal is me in this moment. And it means all the benefits of that offering will become yours. 
And when God accepts the offering, it makes atonement for you. What is that? Well, at one level, atonement simply means at-one-ment. It means being united back to God. But there's two ideas that converge in the word atonement. Two from this chapter anyway. We'll look at more later. But it's the idea of ransom and purifying. What is that? Well, the atoning sacrifice of an animal is a bit like bleach for our souls to clean us and a payment to satisfy God's divine justice. Imagine that every time you sin in your life, every time you ignore your wife and your kids, every time you lie at work, every time you you lust, you act violently, you burst out with words, you manipulate others, every time you do that, you not only damage the relationship with someone else, but you owe a debt to God. Those things are the result of sin between us and God first. Because sin is adultery with a sinful world. It's unfaithfulness to our loving Heavenly Father. The Bible tells us that we're all guilty of that. We've all ripped off God by living a sinful life. And the glory of God, His justice, His holiness, requires that we should perish eternally for that. Because how could someone so holy and perfect look over our life? You can't ask God to give up part of His glory so that you'd be saved or to overlook it. But the good news is that the one we owe a debt to is far more gracious, merciful, and kind than anyone we could ever owe anything to in this life. And Leviticus 1 shows us how God's holiness and glory can be upheld at the same time because a ransom must die in our place. A ransom is a sacrifice on the behalf of the guilty one, me, you, the sinner, to the offended party, the Lord God. And in that moment, God's glory is upheld. So atonement is ransom. But it's also purifying. Because not only the animal becomes you symbolically, but the blood cleans you. Look at verses 5 to 9. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it to pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priests, are to put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. Then the sons, Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. And you are to wash the internal organs and legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It's a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The offering slaughtered, blood splashed all over the altar. It represents your blood, your life being offered to God as a payment for sin. And its blood cleans you from defilement. Leviticus talks a lot about clean and unclean. Unclean means you can't be with God. And part of that is we exist in sin, so we can't. But the blood has the power to clean us. Then its body's burnt. You take the organs, you lay them out like a flower arrangement, essentially, on the altar. And when God sees this, he doesn't eat it. He smells it. It's pleasing. He's pleased with that animal in your place as a substitute, accepting you as clean and ransomed. And if you're there, watching the priest do his thing, blood's everywhere, ashes left over, this becomes a beautiful thing to look at. What some people think is sick and gross, to the one who's freed from it, it's relief and joy. 
When I was a teenager, I used to watch Rove. If anyone remembers Rove, um, yay, thank you. If you don't, shame on you, you've missed out on a great show. Anyway, part of, he used to interview people and do different segments, but one of the ones I remember stood out to me is he interviewed a man who's, who got stuck, whose arm got stuck behind a rock hiking. And he was there for about three or four days, and he couldn't move his arm, and eventually, to get free, he cut his arm off. And he had a digital camera, because we had digital cameras back then, and he, he didn't have a phone or anything. Um, and he took a photo of it, and they showed the photo on the screen. And, and, and I remember the interviewer said, that's gross, why would you take a photo of that? Like, really, I mean, it's, it's, why'd you do it? And, and I remember the guy's response. He said, when I look at that arm behind the rock, I think freedom and beauty, because the rock doesn't have me anymore, I'm free. And that's what the sinner sees when they see the animal on the altar, or what's left of it. Forgiveness, ransom, atonement, cleansing. It's a mess, but it's a glorious mess, isn't it? The point of Leviticus 1 is to show that offerings for sin maintain this relationship with God, which means the heart of God is to forgive through a ransom. When you start to see how holy and majestic God is, there is no such thing as a small offense. There's no little white lie of sin. And day by day, for the life of God's people, an entire animal is killed, burnt up to a crisp, totally gone to ashes, all to show you how great your sin is, how merciful God is in allowing the animal to die in your place. The ransom is to satisfy God's justice for sin and for you to be clean, to relate to him and others again. Yes, God is holy. He should consume us on the altar entirely, not the animal. Yes, he's loving, but love isn't always permission to agree or to let you go on with your life how you want, because God can't overlook past our sin or accept it. So how does he save us and satisfy himself all at once? Think Leviticus 1 like the gum tree seed. As a seed is planted... And as it grows through the pages of the Bible time over time, God's plan of redemption is unfolding. And eventually, when we get to Jesus, this little gum tree becomes like the mighty mountain ash gum trees of Tasmania. Maybe you've seen them, how huge they are from something so very small. Birth in Leviticus is a great understanding of God's glory and holiness. But not until Jesus do we understand this mighty mountain ash gum tree the fullest, most high definition of God's glory and splendor in him. Because to save us and satisfy himself, God sacrificed and substituted himself for us. He sets up the system in Leviticus and then uses it on himself in the life and death of Jesus. That's the how much more of Jesus in chapter 1. How much more of Jesus? All of him for all of me all of him for all of you. He says it so clearly in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Like the burnt offering, completely holy offered to God, so Jesus is. All of him, like the ransom for all of us, for all time. The animal can only atone for yesterday's sin. We'll see that in chapter 10. 
But tomorrow, you need another goat, or a cow, or a bird, and then the day after another one, and another, and another. But Jesus is both like and unlike the animal. He's the human one, without a blemish, the most valuable one that could exist, the Son of God. Nothing deformed, cheap, sinful, worthless in him. Look how Peter says it. It's not with perishable things such as such you are ransomed or redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And just as the animal's blood was splashed against the altar, so Jesus' blood is splashed on us by faith to cleanse us. He's the animal who perishes totally in the fire of God's affliction. But he's unlike anything else because he didn't stay dead. He rose. He went to the ultimate tent of meeting, heaven itself, to fully atone forever, to continually appeal before God day by day with his wounds on your behalf. Every day you wake up, Jesus stands in God's presence and says, God, just look at my wounds when you see Colin today. Every time you get to lunch, Jesus says, God, just look, look at my, the wound in my side, the blood that's now on me that I have shed for Dave. Day by day. There's an old song that says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Maybe you know it. And I'd like to change it today. I'd like to change it to this. Nothing in my hands but my sin I bring. Simply to the cross of Jesus, my ransom, I cling. But it gets better. Because faith in Jesus also makes sure that our worship of God is without blemish. Because without faith in Jesus, our duties to God are blind and lame. Read Romans 12, 1 with me in light of Leviticus 1. See if you can see the connection. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, This is your true and proper worship. Notice the continuity with Leviticus. Holy, sacrifice, mercy, pleasing to God. But notice that because Jesus has been offered once for all time, the offering God now delights in and calls his people to offer is me and you. Our worship does not come from singing psalms as we go to a priest with a knife in his hand to kill the cow or rip apart the bird as we repent from our evil covered in animal blood. Our worship takes place no longer at the altar, but in our shoes, in our work boots, in our running shoes and slippers. Happens as we walk around as a living sacrifice. At work, on the weekend, as we parent, a sacrifice of worship to God in those places, ransomed by Jesus. Which means Monday morning, and when you have Zoom this week, you do that having been ransomed from your former way of life by Jesus. You get the kids ready for school, having been ransomed by Jesus, so that when the frustrations and foolishness of your actions and the stubbornness of your heart that you have those conversations with has an offering to cover it all. You never get your friendships and how to live in a culture that has different values as one who is ransomed from a way of life that is consistent with sin and judgment. Because the life of Jesus, our ransom, now lives in us every day, every situation. He's not dead on the altar. But the trouble 
with a living sacrifice is it can crawl off. And if we do crawl off, if we do seek out sin or carry in defeat or respond with evil to those around us, there is a ransom in Jesus who has been offered once for all time to restore you back to God, to remind you that you are holy in him, to fill you with divine mercy so you can go on for another day until you arrive at the place that our ransom has secured for us into the hands of a gentle, loving God who you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, in the true tent of meeting, heaven with God. And because of Jesus, that can be your everyday life and your ending as well. And Leviticus 1.1 tells us that only through a ransom can our debt to God be paid. Praise God that that is so. Praise God that God sets the system up and then uses it on himself once for all time in his son. Oh, the depth and the riches and the knowledge of God, Paul says. Who can know his ways? Who can, who can fathom the mind of the Almighty One? I can't, but I'm sure glad that he's done that. As you drink coffee and socially distance, why not share how encouraging it is to know Jesus is your once and all, once for all ransom before God? Do you know that? Do you know that? Let's pray, and then we will sing. Our great God, you love us. You sent Jesus as our ransom. We've touched and scratched the surface of that this morning in Leviticus 1. And Father, help us to live live as those who have been redeemed. Live as those who have the life of Jesus in us. Live as those who are loved by the Son of God himself. That we would go into every situation knowing I'm ransomed from my sin and my former way of life. And so now I offer myself as a living sacrifice. Give us grace and mercy, Lord God. We need to make it through this week because he is enough. Amen.